Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to the Rocky Road with me, your host, Kevin Byrne. Now, from Ike Weir to Carl Frampton via Barry McGuigan, Deirdre Gogarty and Patrick Hyland, Ireland has produced some top-notch featherweights down through the years. Perhaps the best of the lot not to win or fight for a world title is Martin Lindsay, the West Belfast favourite who was British champion from 2009 to 2010. The Mac Man scored one of the great knockouts when he iced Derry Matthews in 2008 and followed it up with victory over Paul Appleby the following year in one of the wildest nights ever recorded at the Ulster Hall. Martin hung up his gloves in 2014 and joins us today on the Rocky Road to look back at a career which, I believe, started when you walked through the doors of the Immaculata gym aged eight and met Nugget Nugent. Yes, that's correct. Um, the the boxing club that I, I went to, which Nugget was the head coach, it was actually in the same street that I lived in and grew up in. So it was just a natural thing to go to the boxing club. Everyone around my area went, around it, or went to the club at that time. And... Yes, Nugget was was the main man at, at the helm. What was it? What was it like growing up in the Divis area of Belfast? What, walk us through the area back then. Like, I I, I um, grew up in a place called Divis Flats. You know, it, it probably was one of the roughest areas around. Not even just Belfast, probably around Europe. And um, but these 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 flats. Um, all get knocked down and then they, they, they were replaced with social housing and stuff. And so our boxing club got knocked down and replaced with a, a brand new gym at that time, about 30 years ago. And it was just, uh, uh, as I say, I my house was right on the street next door to it. So I just slowly went over to the club and never looked back as an agent. Yeah, there's a great story about the Immaculata gym in uh, Don McCree. Uh, Don McRae's book in Sunshine and Shadow. So he's talking about Barry McGuigan preparing at the at the Mac and uh, a tearaway losing control of his joyride and a car smashing through the front door of the Immaculata. Francie McCullough was hitting the punch bag when the car crashed into the gym. He started screaming, you effing little bastard at the driver and his joyriding partner. Uh, did you ever hear about those, that story? No, but I'm not surprised. <laughs> and, um, you know, as uh, yep, the, Paul McCulloch was the was the coach, um, ju- uh, the main man at the the Magalada just before they moved out of the Divis Flats, and Eddie Shaw was the coach of the Mac, who was McGuigan's trainer. So I can see why McGuigan was up in the Magalada doing some some workouts when he wasn't in these suits, because a lot of the fighters throughout them years sort of come up, like Eamon McGee was always up in our gym and stuff as well, doing a, a lot of work when he was um in between him and and um John Breens and stuff. So. 
no, I definitely wasn't surprised about the the, the, the stolen car and stuff. There's another, another story about, I think they're running into the gym one day and someone threw a cow's leg from the top of the flats and it landed right in front of them and just blood going everywhere. I wouldn't be surprised. It was probably washing machines getting through over there and fridges and everything. You know, yeah. they're, they're, they're probably aiming for the RUC at that time. So, you know, uh, uh, it was definitely a rough, rough sort of place. But all the people were, were, were good people and they still are. It's still the same people that live there now, even though the, the flats are long gone. And, you know, a lot of them are good community people and stuff. I and, and want the best for their, their, their young people um, growing up and giving them opportunities to succeed. Yeah, and so it's a place where you have to grow up fast, I imagine. A lot of the Mac guys, you know, you were going down, you're being Irish senior champions, also senior champions at 17, 18, 19. There was something, something about you, lads. It, it definitely was. Like, I won the Ulster seniors as a 17 year old as well. And I could probably name maybe, you know, about six or seven off the top of my head. Joe Fitzpatrick, Ran Lindbergh, um, Kevin O'Hara, Shimi McGuinness, Frankie Slane, all 17 year olds going up into the, the elite level amateur and, and winning titles against men you know so it was a tough area and you sort of grew up quick within within the Mark Boxing Club mm. Tell us about Nugget Nugent he, like he um, Nugget there's a great there's a great story written about uh, your relationship Neil Lochran and the Irish News wrote a few years ago like Nugget was interned for nine months back in the 70s uh, came out and got involved with the Immaculata and you know then just created this gym or worked in this not created this gym but worked in a gym just producing champions and had an unusual way of being a coach when, when Nugget probably took over the, the helm after um, Paul McCulloch it was he, he was already coaching in other sports he, he was uh, like in, involved in handball he was coaching that he was coaching soccer teams um, then he, he he moved into the boxing club because of his son started boxing which you know a lot of coaches do join boxing clubs because their their kids are fighting and then next minute they're hooked, they're involved when their kids are long gone. And that was the case with Nugget. So he made a start at 40 odd years ago and hasn't left the place since. And mm. he does, he is a brilliant coach. He he was way, I think, personally, way ahead. He was doing stuff like interval training, fartlek training and stuff 20 odd years ago when we were 15, 16. You know, he had us all well conditioned. Okay, he mightn't have done any boxing himself. But as a coach, he was brilliant. His man management skills were brilliant. And he was just a brilliant figure around the, around the, around the club and stuff. Yeah. And how did your amateur career go, Martin? Like you went to the uh, Commonwealth Games. I think it was only Manchester you got the trip to. Unfortunately, like a lot of guys have got to go to New Zealand, Canada and stuff. But I think you were in the Commonwealth Championships out in Kuala Lumpur with Eamon O'Kane and you got around yep. the world with, with amateur boxing. Yeah, well, uh, I, was, I was a two-time Irish Elite champion. Mm. Um, I won them as an 18-year-old for a, a guy called Damien McKenna. Um, he was a four or five, ten. he was actually in the top 10 in the world at that time. Remember the the World Amateur Championships were in Belfast? Yeah. yeah so he right, lost yeah. in the quarterfinal for Ireland. So I went down and fought him the following year after I won the Ulster um, Seniors and I beat him in a tight fight in the final. And I went on to the Commonwealth Games the following year and I it was a bit of a disaster that Commonwealth Games. We had a cracking team. And, you know, we went to Cuba for four or five weeks to prepare for it. And nice. I think it, yeah, it was nice there, but the, the training was tough. You were you ran against, you know, world-class fighters every day. And it was the, it was like a fight every day. You were fighting for, you know, surveyor. And I think when we came back, we were all just sort of maybe burnt out a bit. 
because in that team we had the likes of Liam Cunningham, who got a silver in the previous Commonwealth Games, Paul McCluskey, myself, you know, Kevin O'Hara, you know, uh, Jordan McCauley. There, there was, a, you know, every single one of us who went there were either favourites or way up tipped highly to get medals. And then we just, I don't know what happened, just came buff, 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 down like a, a set of skittles and a bull now. Yeah. You know, once one get beat, it just started the, the flow. And, yeah. you know, it was very disappointing, but, you know, I don't, I don't think that team was way, way better than what, what, what actually happened in, in them games. And what was it that prompted you to go professional at the time? You went quite young. The, um, I wasn't really sort of loving the amateur game at that point. It, it was the four two minute rounds and it was the scoring that were, you know, faders were getting one or two points in front and were run, basically running away for the next two, three rounds, you know, and it was hard to, to you know, you, you became frustrated because you knew you were maybe a better sort of all-round fader than your opponent, but he was just able to maintain that one-point, two-point gap by running away. And uh, the amateur game now would have suited me a lot better, I, I, I personally think. And uh, once uh, I didn't qualify for the Olympics in 2004, I decided that, you know, I was either going to leave to go to university because I asked Nugget to train me. If I wanted to go pro and go to university, and I asked him to train me, and he, he wasn't really too keen and I says, well, if you don't train me, I'm going to go to university and that's me finished. Yeah. So he didn't want to see me stop because it was only 22. Yeah. So he says, okay, I'll I'll give it a go. Um, well, so me and him was just learning the pro game together. You know, we hadn't completed um, four threes, six threes, eight threes, ten. So he was doing a wee bit of research and trying to prepare me for it. And, you know, we were learning as every fight went by and it became a brilliant relationship. We, all right, but didn't fight for the world title. But I mean... We were highly ranked. We got the no, number four in the IBF, number 14 in WBC, EBU number one stuff. So, you know, we, we had a few victories and a, and a few defeats, but we've done well together. Yeah, early in your career, like you fought, you know, you fought in, in England, your debut at Crystal Palace, you fought in Dundalk in Dublin, Belfast, ended up in Canada for uh, three fights out of four and even in Italy. What, what brought you around the world at that stage? Well, I, I was sort of a free agent at that time and I was sort of, my manager was getting me fights by through his contacts. My manager was John Rooney at that time and he was like getting me fights over in England and then he had a connection with John Mastushin out of Matchroom. So I got on Damien Kelly. I was my first time once guy. I, was, I think it was my fifth fight. I got a, on the Damien Kelly undercard where he was he was Rob Brain against, I think it was a guy called Maldrado. And um. After that, he got in connection with Steve Maltour's manager and promoter, a guy called Alan Tremblay, who okay. ran around sports in Canada. And he was keen to bring me over there. So I went over anyway on a fade-by-fade basis, and he got me a couple of fights. And, but he, he was eventually wanting me to be the headliner because at that time, Maltour was the IBF World Super Bantamweight champion, and I was his chief support. So we were fighting in Casino Rama, beautiful venue, thousands of people at it, but there was loads of Irish Canadians who were going to it and I was yeah. getting brilliant support. So we were going over anyway and we went over, it was three or four times, one of the fights got cancelled and then Haymaker come on the scene and offered us um, you know, a full contract to come back. They, they, they got a deal with Santanta Sports and it was softened that 
potentially, you know, looking back, it might have been one of the things that might have stuck, should have stuck it out over in Canada because, as I say, they were prepared to bring me on the next on after my tour. I was team support. I was getting TV exposure on TSN. I was getting a good following. But the, the deal that Haymaker was offering was probably too good, you know, to, to turn down. Too good to turn down, yeah. And, and um, you make your debut uh, with Haymaker on the 20th of September of 2008 in Hillsborough, Sheffield. And it's against the higher ranked fighter. Uh, I assume you were the underdog in that fight as Derry Matthews, highly ranked in the in a couple of the, the world organizations. Uh, yeah. What were your thoughts going into that fight? See, I actually fancied that Derry Matthews fight before it was even offered to me. But I remember telling I think it was Kevin O'Hara one time that, you know, I, I would like a crack at it. was when Dai Matthews was WBU world champion. It's throughout my career, I, I've always sort of wanted to jump in against the one who was the champion. So, like, as I say, with even going back to my amateur career, when I was looking at Damien McKenna down in the Odyssey when I was a, a 17 year old, I was going, I'm going to be fighting him next year, you know, yeah. to get his title. But that was the same with Dai Matthew at that time. He was the, the number one. He was the WBU champion for a couple of years. He'd be good fighters like Steve Foster Jr. and stuff. But a, a guy called Choi had knocked him out. And I just fancied the fight. And when I was offered it, I took it at five weeks' notice. And I just, I was already training and stuff because Adam, Adam Booth had said that, you know, potentially we're going to be fighting on a, a Ryan Rhodes card on that date. So it was already taken away on the, presumption that it was going to be fighting somebody but then it was a British title eliminator against Dari Matthews so I, I just took the fight and I was ready to go you know I had a one ten rounder and I was I just felt it was my time to, to, to step up yeah now for anyone who's listening to the podcast and who hasn't been lucky enough to see that uh, the punch that finished Dari Matthews that night I'd recommend get straight on YouTube afterwards because it's one of the, it's it must be the best punch you've ever thrown in your career or sir, one of them anyway it's up there um the way you connected with them the fight was you you'd taken over in the fight but you maybe lost dropped a couple of the early rounds uh, he was cut you were getting on top starting to rough him up but you hit him with this absolute peach of a shot and he went down very hard see i i was working on that shot i was working on a couple of shots no the try and land a big a big one on him early because with the Choi fight, with him, with him being, you know, knocked out and dropped a few times, we didn't want to give him, get him to get into a wee bit of range and distance because he, he's quite tall and rangy and he's a good, very, very good boxer. So we were trying to go in to upset the rhythm straight away, you no know, putter on him. But he, he dropped me in the second round. I don't know if any, I, I don't know if it's on YouTube or not. As I was coming in with the same left hook, he sort of just t- done a wee dip and clipped me and, and I fell down. I was up straight away. But he went on and he was putting the pressure on me. And then after the third round, I knew it was four points down. So I had to change it up and took my time a wee bit more. Started landing a couple of good shots. So I felt I won the, the, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth. Pulled it back, the one point in it. Then the seventh was tight. I thought he won the eighth. And then, so I obviously needed the knockout, out or else the best case scenario was going to be a draw. And, and I got it. But I was, I was looking at it all night. So... I was happy enough just to land. And I knew if I got it once, I was, I was it. I was going to get it. Yeah, yeah. Had you had there been a few unfortunate sparring partners caught with that same punch in the in the weeks previous to the fight? I'm I'm sure you're going to have to probably ask a few of those, but I'd say there probably was. Yeah. <laughs> 
what's it feel like to land the perfect punch? Like we've seen, I, the, I think the best proponent of it is Andy Lee from from Ireland. Like because yeah. you've seen a couple of times Andy Lee has landed maybe a right hook on a guy's chin, and he's he's walking to the other side, real nonchalant, walking to the other side of the ring with his arm up in celebration as the other guys kind of fall into the floor like a ladder off the side of a house. What's it feel like to really just land the shot that you've practiced, 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 and you know that the fight that you're you could be about to lose on points is over, and it's not going to have to. It's not going to have to go to the judges' scorecards or whatever. The fight's over. Your night's over. You get in the shower now. You're done. No, obviously, it is a good feeling, but it just be a split second. You know, you don't sort of process it in your mind at that time, but it's only when you go back and look at it and you go, all the hard work, all the stuff that you were practicing paid off. But at that wee split second, it's just more relief. You've won the fight. You know, thank God. That's how you, you, you've got another victory under your mm. belt and move on. But that's it. That, that was really it. Yeah, a knockout like that though can make you a bit of an attraction. Did you feel that like because quite quickly you because there's a lot of buzz all of a sudden about Martin Lindsay. You've come, you know, you've you've been fighting a bit abroad. You've had some domestic cards, but now there's a chance to uh, to bring you home to Belfast and be be the main man. Did you feel well, your kind of status change immediately? Yeah, definitely. But when I'd won that, and then you know, as you say, a lot. Of, I was getting a lot of um, interviews and stuff, and you know, people were taking notice that. I was starting to, you know, I had a few knockouts, I think, about four or five in the end of them first, first 11 fights. So people did start to take notice. And I, I always had a lot of following in, around my local area. So mm. Haymaker were the first to um, take a gamble and just say, bring in, you know, Paul Appleby over to the Oster Hall. So, and I think he paid a fortune for it, you know, to come over because he was the champion at the time. He was the British Boxing Raiders Young Fighter of the Year. So, yeah. but he, he must have felt confident in his ability to, to come over here to take the victory. So the two of us were undefeated, two young prospects. And we were actually met the fight a year previous for the Celtic title, but there, there was no money in it. There was no, um, you know, it was peanuts. And so the both of us decided to wait till it got a wee bit bigger. And, and that, was, that, that was when it was in the Ulster Hall that time. Yeah, I have some quotes here from Appleby about taking the fight. Like he says... Um, what does he say here? Yeah, he kind of, he uses his inspiration for the fight, for taking the fight in, in that Derry Matthews isn't the same fighter that he once was because probably Choi took something away from him. I don't want to take anything away from Lindsay, but if he hits me with the same left hook, I won't be going down. I'm pretty confident of that. Beating Lindsay in his own backyard will be my best win to date. Lindsay is rated really highly by a lot of people. I also rate him really highly. If I were to beat him, it would be a brilliant achievement. I need to hurt him early and hopefully put him down or stun him. I'll then get his respect and take over from that point. You were also confident, though. No, I, I was definitely confident. I, I just thought his style was tailor-made for me. You know, I felt that it, that it could make him miss because he, he was a bit slower. But he, uh, looking back, his main points was probably his strength and, and his punching power was probably a wee bit more than me. But I think everything else was in my favour. So we were just, our game plan was to go out and make him miss and counter everything that, that he missed with. And I was working for the first three, four rounds. I think he made it got success in one of the rounds. And then... I stunned him in the fifth and then in the sixth when I when I stunned him again, I just went for the finish and you know the referee went in and stepped in and finished it. But I felt I had him at that point. There's um what how do you account for your popularity at the time? You you were having a you were having a big moment. Um I was chatting to my friend uh, Dave Moen from West Belfast there, just asking, you know, yeah. what what do you think the root of it was? And he, he was just saying that 
just because Martin's a nice guy. Belfast wanted a new star. You know, you were you were the guy, and you know everyone's behind you because you you weren't a trash talker. You weren't someone to go out and talk crap about an opponent. I don't think you gave like Appleby any abuse. There was no real rivalry in that way stoked up in terms of I'm going to kill you. Or I'm going to do it. There, there was probably more rivalry between his supporters and my supporters than there was between me and him. You know, because at the way in, it got a wee bit heated. And I think that that stoked up. That's why it was such a great atmosphere in that fight that 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 night, because they started a wee bit of argy bargy with each other. And then when they get into the hall, obviously all them Scott supporters, you know, they like to be vocal, and so all my supporters were vocal. And it just you couldn't even hear the place. You couldn't even hear the microphone. You couldn't hear nothing. Just stomping yeah. and jumping, and you know. But it was a brilliant night. It was one I'll never forget. Yeah, because there's not much footage of of the fight online, but there's a lot of fan footage, a lot of camera footage, and. Every single one of them just shows the place was absolutely rocking. I didn't get to go to that fight. I was actually in Australia at the time. And I remember the night was the same night as Frotch against Jermaine Taylor. And also it was the night, just I remember that, I think John Duddy lost his unbeaten record to Billy Lyle. Yeah. And, but you were he- you were headlining on Satanta and things were looking good. Nugget Nugent was saying, um, uh, here's a couple of quotes from Nugget Nugent. He was saying, um, the Appleby night, I was never in an atmosphere like it. Normally when you're at a fight, there's wee pockets of people who know you. See that fight, almost everybody in the place knew me and Martin well. They were all Martin's friends. The whole district was there. It was something special. No, it definitely was. I, I could probably say hand on heart, I probably sold 90% of the tickets on that show. So nearly every single person I knew personally. But, um, but it was just at that time, then a wee bit of bad luck crept in. Santanta sort of went bankrupt. Um, Adam Booth lost the contract with them. And so then it was a case of what they were doing. I, you know, mm. I was waiting about and I, Haymaker wanted to keep me. They, they had a roster of fighters, but I was one that they wanted to keep. But I had all promoters coming at me at that time, looking to sign up. And, you know, looking back, I probably should have stayed with Adam Booth and, and Haymaker Promotions because David Hay wasn't world heavyweight champion at that time. He was the cruiserweight. But then you cut up in on his curtail, you know, on the back of all his big fights that he had after that. Yeah. But at that, at that time, I was sort of listening to everyone and I was going, well, what will I do for what's best for me? You know, I've got promoters here who have TV and are willing to pay you. And whereas do you stick with another promoter, but who has one of the best fighters on the planet? So yeah. I didn't know. I was sort of caught in a, a, a 22 city. I didn't know I was tugged both ways. But looking back, I was probably one of my mistakes in my career. I should have probably stayed with um, Haymaker Promotions because I would have been on the back of David Hay shows and stuff, which look what happened to George Groves. He was on, he, he stayed, you know. So, yeah. but that's the way it goes. I know, because on a recent episode, we had um, Darren Corbett on and he was talking about winning the Commonwealth title against Chris Oko, I think in 1997. And that was, it was a night where it felt like everything was everything was possible. But I guess it was, it was the, the, ultimate peak, you know, and, and from there, then things kind of maybe changed. What, what then do you decide to become a hometown attraction and build a brand that way and build towards a world title as a hometown hero, or do you go on the road, take the fights your promoter wants you to take? So I don't think any fighter really knows what to do at that stage. And there's no set, there's no set route to the top at that stage. You're being pulled left and right. Um, I suppose afterwards you, you went and signed with Frank Maloney. Yes. Same with Frank because, um, he had offered a good deal and stuff, and he, he had the Sky contract. So you were getting exposure on Sky Sports. And 
he also had my mandatory fighter, which was a guy called Jamie Arthur, who uh, he won gold in the Commonwealth Games that I was at. So he did a lightweight, a couple of weights above me. So I was to fight him to defend the British title. And he, Frank Maroney being the, the promoter of him and was putting in a bid. So he was more or less saying, look, if you say I'm a meal, I'll bring it to a neutral venue. But if you don't, I'm bringing it to Wales. You know, not yeah. that it, it mattered about the fight, but it was just the other pros, you know, it was the Sky Sports, the the contract, the fights that he was he was going to get me. It persuaded me to same with him anyway. And he did bring it to a neutral venue and I ended up, Jamie Arthur was my first defense, but it was a year, or I think it was a year after or something after I'd won the British title. I should have already had maybe one or two defenses and moved on. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? But that with the Santanta going bankrupt, I was right in my prime. I should have been fighting every three months, but it, it just felt like, a big long gap and but I still won that fight and maybe I should have kicked on after that because Jamie Arthur was the best in Wales Matthews in England Appleby in Scotland I didn't really need to hang about it anymore you know I should have vacated and moved on to to a, a different um, platform or a higher level yeah because I guess at British title level and it, even these days you see Anthony Kakacha he's won the British title and it's like you're on the precipice of fighting for a world title, but then do you, do you risk a defense against someone else that you could lose it to? Um, it's, it's just difficult well, to stick or twist, isn't it? I actually I actually did get offered a, a, an IBF final eliminator, which I accepted and signed a contract for, but then it fell through. And I'll tell you the story, you won't believe who I was near going to be fighting. At that time, Orlando Salido was the IBF champion, you know, who went on to beat Lomachenko on his first yeah, fight, yeah. second fight. But, um, Billy Dibb was IBF rank number three, and I was number four. And Pat McGee gave me a phone call one time. I was on holiday at the time, and he says, the IBF are looking to run a final eliminator. You're the highest rank. Number number one and number two was vacant. Number three was Billy Dibb. You're four. It's me, yes, I'll take it. I watched a bit of Billy Dibb. He was rough. But he was a fighter. I, I thought that in my head, I was going, I could beat him, no problem here. Yeah. And So I accepted it. Billy Dibb withdrew from the, 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 the purse bid or the contract, whatever. He didn't, didn't take it. So who it moved down to the next one. Who was the next fighter? But in, in the meantime of all this, I was still negotiating a British title fight. Who was the next fighter who could have been fighting? Who uh, got, uh, so you're looking at the IBF federates back then. Yeah, Hardy back Pacquiao. Then. Pacquiao? No. Mikey Garcia. <laughs> oh, geez, he was the next right. one. He, he was like 23-0 and 0 with 21 knockouts or something. So next minute, I get offered this one and the money wasn't great. I was getting double the money to defend the British title against John Simpson. So I was right. going, maybe I'll, just say, I'll, I'll defend against Simpson in the end. Maybe I'll, I'll go in and see what the higher the landscape, because you, you, won't, you wouldn't have lost your ranking, you know what I mean, at that, yeah. at that time. So I, I nearly could have been fighting Mickey Garcia to, to fight Orlando Salido, <laughs> the uh, way things stop. worked out back then. But um, but yeah, that's that's all here and say, isn't it? The sliding doors of boxing. It's all. Uh, there's so many stories, or just one decision different, or one tiny circumstance gets changed, and and everything changes, doesn't it? It, it definitely is because so you think about it, you train for months, and you're getting in, and you're expected to be at your peak level for one night. You know, anything can happen. You could be sick the night before, which which happened to Selby in our first fight when he had to pull out. Um. Anything can happen. We can give you a sort of, you know, a week hold, maybe a couple of days before the wee injury in your knuckle. Any, and it, it is tough. It's all wee split seconds in a boxing career that, you know, you just need that wee bit of luck. I think the, 
the progress up into winning world titles and you know and even a even a, an inferior fighter can hurt you on a night because you're still going to take several maybe 100 punches off that fire and one of them could hit could it hit you on a part of the head that rocks you and or one of them could hit you on a part of the rib and suddenly you're out of breath and afterwards you've lost yeah. on points or whatever and so like you, you lost your british title uh, on december the 15 2010 at the king's hall against john simpson yep. like uh you're a better fighter than john simpson no and i made it took my eye off the ball at that point because Barry matthews and both paul appleby had beaten him previously mm-hmm. and but I knew he was a tough, tough fighter, you know, because uh, I heard a few stories and I watched him and, you know, he always gave it his, his lot. I just felt that, you know, it was, it was like the Appleby fight. I just felt that it was a bit better than and everything else. But he came in and I weighed like two and a half pound late for the fight. I don't know where I overtrained or where, you know, I was in great condition. But you never see fighters coming in two and a half pound under, you, you know, their weight. But yeah. it did anyway, but it felt great. And when I get into the fight, but he just seemed that wee bit tougher than me. And I was, I was trying to do my boxing and then I got a bad eye and I was trying to stick to the boxing. But he just kept dragging me into his sort of fight. And I ended up losing, you know, it was a few rounds, one sixteen, one thirteen, all the judges. But I was eager to get that rematch and it never materialized. See if I had got the rematch in just, say, two, three months, I'd have been extremely confident in, re- in reversing that decision. But he went on to defend against um, Stephen Smith. I think it was straight away after that, and then I had to sort of wait and bide my time to get another opportunity to to, to get a to get a fight. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, um, because that fight in 2010, um, like you came back with a, you came back with a couple of wins. But in hindsight, it almost feels like kind of boxing had, had already moved on, which is cruel. The sport is extremely cruel because you came back and you boxed on a couple of Paul McCluskey undercards. Yep. And Frampton was on those undercards. He'd been Simpson's sparring partner as well back in the day. But, you know, Frampton beat Molitor in one of the undercards you were on. And McCluskey was topping the bill. And, and now Frampton was being groomed to take over. And before you know it, like two, three years have gone by and you're you're... You're almost like an opponent. You're, you're like the guy kind of slightly on the way down against the guy on on the way up. We were talking about this with Dave Boy McCauley recently. It's just, it's it's negligible the difference, but like the perception of just someone who's just on the way uh, down through the rankings uh, versus someone on the way up. So I'm I'm taking the long way around to say that you fight Lee Selby on on the undercard of Frampton uh, Kiko Martinez, February 9th, twenty thirteen at the Odyssey Arena. Yep. Selby looked incredible at that, that night. I. I remember thinking he'd knocked out Stephen Smith and I remember thinking, ah, no, Lindsay will still, Lindsay will still have too much for him. And if I had money, I probably would have backed you, but we still wanted to see if uh, Lee Selby was the real deal. Tell me if I'm wrong. I think, I remember thinking Selby really is the real deal because I thought you were really good that night and I thought you gave it absolutely everything. And you might tell me now afterwards that you didn't perform at your best or you had an injury complaint, but I felt like you'd really left, like you'd really given everything that night. So, See, in, in the Selby fight, it wasn't one of my most difficult fights, if I'm honest. 
it, it was more a frustration because he, he was such a good boxer. And he, he sort of punished you anytime you missed, and he was a big long job. And it, it wasn't a punishing job; it was just like a flick. But it just made you stop and hesitate for that wee one second. You know, I'd have preferred the 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 Applebee's, even the Simpsons coming at you, ready to you know have a tear up, maybe just say. But he was just that wee bit hard to pin down. I thought and. It was more frustrating because when I came out, I actually thought I could have maybe done more, believe it or not. You know, even mm. though he, he did win it, I won a couple of rounds on it, but it was just one fight I came out and going, I was looking in the mirror, I was going, like, that wasn't even a hard fight. You know, it was just frustrating. It was one of his best performances, I'd say. He was extremely, he was really good that night. He was hard to pin down, like you say, and he, he didn't beat you up. It's not as if you walked out of there like battered, battered and bruised or anything like that, but you'd really tried to pin him down all evening, you know, I felt. Even in the punch stats after, I landed more headshots than him, you know what I mean? Right. But he, he did punish a few body shots on, on me, so he did that night. But as I say, it wasn't one of my harder fights. I've had I had a harder fights. He was just probably one of the more skillful people that had fought that I found hard to pin down. So after the Selby, you have one comeback win on a Mark Dunlop bill, and there's an entire new generation coming through again, and uh, it must be making you feel old at this stage, because Dee Walsh and Paul Hyland Jr., James Tennyson, they're all boxing on the same card, and uh, you're fighting again with them. Yep. So see, after the Selby fight, I didn't get a fight for, I think it was over a year. And then next minute, I seen, I, I watched um, Josh Warrington win the vacant um, Commonwealth title and stuff on a matchroom show so and then I think he defended it against Randall Monroe I'm not 100% sure I think it was but I remember seeing that he was making his debut in, in his home city and stuff and I texted Eddie Hearn it was about five weeks before and I texted him saying look I'll take that fight because I was still training away even though I hadn't fought in a year I was still training I was helping James Friars getting ready for the, the Dunlap show Hmm. So I says, I'll take it. And more that he get back to me and said, look, we'll consider, you know, there's a few options there. And I says, right, okay. And um, then about, must be about just under four weeks to, to get back, right, okay, well, you need to have a fight. The British Boxing Board says you need to have a fight in between because you haven't fought in over a year. So that's how I ended up on the, the Mark Dunlap show because it was only, if you look at it, it was only 10 days before fighting Warrington. So I had to have this fight in the middle of fighting Warrington. And then there was a bit of right. commotion about that fight because it was meant to fight somebody who was like, you know, 10 stone or something. And I wanted to fight somebody a bit later to get me closer to nine stone so that I could prepare for Warrington. So it was a bit of commotion anyway, but we got the fight sorted. And then I went over and, and fought Josh Warrington after. And uh, what did you what did you make of Warrington? He... Um... I think he's he tweeted about it recently. He was just a kind of one of those look back videos, and he said he was shitting it on the night, because, probably because of the uh, the size of this, the scale of the event. It's like you say, his first night uh, headlining in his arena in Leeds, yeah. And we knew that the the public support that he had behind him and something you know all about. Uh, but he said he was breaking it. And what was your what was your fight plan to inter to interrupt him, intercept him? See, my mine's was to go to be honest was to go out and sort of walk him down, put pressure on him because I knew I was probably a bit physically bigger, you know, I was a bit older, mature and stuff. And my game plan was to go and walk him down, put him under severe pressure, and hopefully, you know, he crumbled, which he didn't. But that was my game plan at that time. And I think I watched one of his um, interviews with your man James English just a while back and he says I was the only man ever to hurt him before he got knocked out in his last fight there 
it was with a body shot in the fourth round. And I actually remember that body shot because sometimes when, when freighters are in close, when you land a good shot, you can hear the wee, <gasps> no, like, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, the, and I remember doing it, but he disguised it well and I didn't see it. But in that interview, he was saying that, oh, I could really feel it. And I was going, I wish I hadn't knew at that point because I made a whamper, <laughs> you know, knowing that I hadn't like fought in a year, I made a, took a gamble. But, um, left hand, yeah, right hand, what was it? It was, it was a left hook into the body. And then, Round the side, round the side, straight down the middle. Or? Right in. I remember yeah. Atlanta clean and I remember the wee, but it was only a wee split second. He didn't look hurt. He he, he looked completely fine. But he says he was gasping for her inside in, in that interview. And I was going to myself, I wish I had a new that. <laughs> yeah, I made a want for it, you know, but it, it, it didn't happen. And then as he says, he came out the next round and started attacking my body. And see from there, I really felt that. I'm not even joking. See, see them last three rounds was probably the longest of my whole boxing career because every time he was hitting it, there was like a, a wee stinging pain, you know, going through. It was like a needle getting stuck into your, your rib every time he was hitting the same spot. And I was going to myself, how am I going to try and suck up the th- swing back here to get, you know, hopefully get a knockout or whatever. But there was a wee glimpse in the 11th round where the two of us just sort of went toe-to-toe because that's what I needed. Because he, that's that's where a, he sort of went way up in my opinion as a boxer. Because he just didn't go in. He wasn't just a going punches of punches and go in your face and, and outwork you. He actually had a nice job, nice solid job, and he, he kept stepping off the sides. And he, he's a far better boxer than what people um, made him out. Especially and obviously people know now that he, he's a really good one. But that was the one after the two of us were in, as I say, two of us pacing blood. That was the first time uh, that's ever happened to me. And see, and as I was doing it, I just had a wee baby girl and I had a two-year-old child in the house and I went, this is me done now. I just knew, see there at that point, I just knew I was me finished. That's when I just called it a day. Is that the first time it happened to you? The first time I'd ever, I'd ever peed blood, yep. And bring us into that, bring us into that bathroom because it's such a terrible, vicious image. But so are, are both of you in the same kind of... Yep, the, the both of us were from... getting drugs tested after the fight. Yeah. So when we went in and the he he was in a different sort of area for me because the guy comes in and spacks you and stuff. But the first bit that I gave him, it was all full of blood. Oh. And, and they took it away anyway. And I was going, I started panicking because I was going, then you go and see a doctor. And we, uh, I just... Couldn't believe it. You know, it was just red blood coming out. Like, I was like, are so we talking went, pure red now, like Heinz ketchup or diluted, like kind of well, Ribena or something like that? Now. Well, it was sort of di- diluted, but it was but blood. Real. It was red, like yeah. it was coming out. And um, so I went to the doctor and he he says it was a normal occurrence. It, like it happens with, with fighters. And I says, well, it's never happened with me. And yeah. he says, look, if it, if it stays there for 24 hours, then, you know, you need to go to the hospital and turn off the next day. It went away. It just cleared up again. Did you tell um, over your career, did you tell little lies maybe to your loved ones, your partner, anything like that, or even your kids? Like, did you tell little white lies? Oh, no, I'm fine. Or did you reveal everything? I'm, I'm pissing blood. That kind of stuff. No, but no, no you never. Yeah, I, I was, that was the first time that I ever pissed blood. Yeah. But um, no, other you things, though, other, other, other things first, you made have. Yeah. No, sometimes you made have, you know, felt down and stuff and, or you, uh, you may have been tired or you may have been browned off that day. But as a fighter, you always had to, no, I'm fine, I'm strong, I'm ready to go. You yeah. know, you couldn't sort of show any sign of weakness. You had to sort of suck it up and, you know, bluff it out to, to, to move on because if you show your opponent any sign, you you know, he's going to take advantage of that. So 
no, I made it, made it totally there. And white, white lies to go, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm okay, but I, maybe I wasn't feeling okay at that time. Yeah. Now, I suppose that was your last, that was your final fights and you, you made probably yeah. the right call for yourself and your health and your family at that stage. Uh, I'll get out now. I've, I've enjoyed my time in boxing. Um, and you, you've been tempted to come back a couple of times over the years, but you resisted the urge. That, that first year was tough because there was like a first fault and fourth part was on and it was a show on and it was up with Freedom Melee fight on the show and it was only about, you know, it was less than a year, I think. Uh, I was quiet. I could still come back because I was still doing a bit of sparring and stuff. I was still in shape and, and then I just went, no. As time went by, I started to get used to it and then I got the job in the boxing academy and then that was it. Well, you've brought us around beautifully to that and we started off this interview by saying you met Nugget Nugent at age eight, you know, one of those brilliant characters who seems to have been around for a lifetime in Belfast boxing, but you're working now alongside another one in Jerry Story, and you guys are tra- uh, coaching at the mess. So can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, the, the Boxing Academy started, uh, this is the sixth six year of it, and um, it's basically for students who come in to do a vocational qualification, be personal trainers, gym instructors, but they take part or part in boxing classes through the, the mornings before they go to class. And um, we've, we've actually touched lucky from we've began, you know, we've had Aidan Walsh in our first year, mm. um, James McGivern, you know, so we've, we've had a good few fighters in. And as I say, me and Jay was the first two coaches that were brought in. I'd say he was probably brought in because he was, you know, more older, senior, experienced, daytime Olympic coach. Um, you know, his is just his um, reputation. And then I was brought in as the young coach, the sort of so what the two of us have, have, have gelled working together. He can probably, he can probably open more doors than Indiana Jones at this stage. So he's, he's <laughs> the key, has the keys to everywhere, doesn't he, Jerry? Like uh, definitely. He, he, to be honest, get, he's first in that gym every day and he's last out, believe it or not, and he's 85. Yeah. <laughs> and I suppose you're picking up a few kind of coaching nuggets for yourself going forward as well, because is that is that your future in boxing? Yep. I, I'm 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 sort of in the Maculata. I'm a coach in the Maculata as well. So I'd still work with Nugget every night, still get advice off him, how to do things, how, how not to do things. And eventually I will probably take over the Mac as the, as the main coach. But as long as Nugget's still there, you know, I'll be playing second fiddle to him. Yeah, and to see him down there, I'm bouncing off Jai. I'm still learning off wee, wee stuffs that, he, you know, he does. And, you know, that's all you can do as a coach. You learn off, off the ones with more experience. Well, you're getting a PhD there, to be honest, from learning from those guys. Well, definitely, definitely. Martin Lindsay, what a pleasure. Go, you, you, have to, you have to dash now to train a few kids, so uh, I'll let you go. But it's been brilliant hearing about your career today on Rocky Road. Much appreciated. Yep, thanks very much for having me on. <laughs>